Thank you, Jeanette. Peace be with you. So we hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words sound familiar? Uh, especially on this 4th of July weekend. Th- those are the, the words, words from the Declaration of Independence, uh, written in 1776. Um, and as you think about those words, uh, I find it interesting uh, that when our nation was being formed, uh, that the founders uh, all agreed that along with things like life and liberty, that the pursuit of happiness made the cut. That when they looked at what is it that drives people, the pursuit of happiness was at the top of the list. There's a recognition 250 years ago that we're all longing for happiness. Now, if if you've been around for the last few weeks, uh, you know that this is where uh, our current sermon series in Matthew chapter 5, where where we're at in Matthew chapter 5, fits right in. Theologians call this the Edenic ache. It means that we all long for the condition of the Garden of Eden to actually be back. That that longing for happiness is not just fluffy feelings, it's deep satisfaction. And there is like a hole in the human heart that's longing for it. It's longing for things to be right. It's longing for things to be restored. It's longing for human flourishing. Well, the Beatitudes fit right in. As you heard that passage be read by Jeanette just a second ago, uh, you notice in those first two verses that Jesus went up on the mountain and sat down. And that's what an authoritative teacher does. And what Jesus is doing is he's giving us a pitch of what the good life is. And we've said this every week now for a while, but just real quickly, if, if you're not familiar with the word beatitude, uh, the, 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 the uh, New Testament was originally written in the, in the Greek language. And so the word for blessed that you find in verse 3, 4, 5, all the way down, the word for blessed is the Greek word makarios. Well, eventually the New Testament was translated from Greek into Latin, and that word was translated from makarios into beatus. And then eventually it was translated from Latin into English, and we, uh, most, m- many uh, English versions use the term blessed or blessed. And so you can track it through the various languages, and beatus is where the word beatitude comes from. It's the Latin word uh, for blessed. But what is a beatitude? Well, we've described them this way, that they are a description of the good life from Jesus' perspective, that Jesus is now seated in a position of an authoritative teacher, and he has given us his vision. Every great teacher gives you their pitch for the good life. And Jesus is giving us his pitch for the good life. Uh, These are not divine blessings that are bestowed upon you. They are not commands. Uh, But as one writer put it, they are congratulatory descriptions of people in a state of well-being. And we're invited into that too. So far, we've looked at the the, um, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And we pointed out that that means that you recognize that the biggest problems in your life and the biggest problems in the world are bigger than you. Uh, blessed are those who mourn, means those who lament what is broken, that it actually breaks your heart 
when you see the condition of your life and of the world. Uh, the meek, we looked at this last week. Uh, we saw that they are those who are humble and, and gentle. And then in verse 6, Jesus says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. So, who, who, who are these people? What, what is he saying about them? Uh, let's, let's take a look. Uh, I think the best way to try to tackle this is to start off by answering the question of what is righteousness? Uh, the Greek word for righteous or the Greek word for righteousness is, is kind of a complex uh, uh, word. And what makes it complex is that various New Testament authors seem to, uh, maybe you would say that they like to that give it an accent in different ways. So it's not like they're talking about a completely different idea, but they like to emphasize it or, or uh, accent it in different ways. So if you go through Matthew's gospel, then Luke's gospel, John, Paul, uh, if you went back into the Old Testament, um, the, 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 the use of this word righteous uh, can almost feel like they're using it differently, uh, but they're, they're really trying to accent or highlight an aspect of it uh, in slightly different, different ways. Uh, you might be able to say that the most basic connector is that biblical righteousness is conformity to a standard. And Jesus Christ is that standard. Uh, Jonathan Pennington, we, we've uh, referenced him many times in this series so far. He says that righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, God's will, and his coming kingdom. So whole person behavior. So this, this idea of, of righteousness. And I think what Jonathan Pennington is doing is, is inviting this recognition that there's multiple angles that you can talk about righteousness from. And you see that as you look at the various authors of the New Testament using that same word to sometimes feel like they're doing something different with it. Uh, let, 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 me, let me suggest that I think that there might be two main prongs uh, for, for righteousness that, that help flesh this out some. Uh, there is a moral prong. And a lot of us, I don't want to speak for you, I grew up in the church, my dad was a pastor, and I spent a lot of time around the Bible and in classes and you know, Sunday school and things like that. And my default image or idea that comes to mind when I hear righteous or righteousness is in, along this line of the moral prong. Like, is this right? Is this right or is this wrong? It has a moral sense to it, an ethical sense to it. There's an objectivity to it. Are you doing the right thing or are you doing the wrong thing? It's, it's, it's in that moral sense. The second prong, though, is a, a relational prong. Kind of asking the question of like, are we all right? Are we good? Is everything right here? Uh, it has a relationship sense to it. it. It's an evaluation of how things are going between two or more parties. And, and a way to see why this can get complex is because one of the ways that you could consider the relational prong is between you and God. What's your relationship like between, what's the relationship like between you and God? Uh, the, the, the other word that can be used here is the word justification. And, and justification means to be declared righteous, declared righteous by God. This, this is the good news that comes through the gospel of Jesus. That if we have run to Christ, then the gospel says that all of our sin is actually taken away and we are covered in Jesus's righteousness. It's a legal declaration about our relationship with God. 
So it has something to say about this relational prong of righteousness in, in regard to your relationship with the God of heaven. And what happens in justification is the most crazy resume swap that has ever happened in the world. Jesus takes all of your sin upon himself and he gives you all of his righteousness. And, you know, the Bible actually says that Jesus, in, in, the, in the message of the gospel, in his work on the cross, his death and his burial, his resurrection, that Jesus is actually treated as if he sinned. He didn't sin, but he's treated as if he sinned. And then the shocker is that we are treated as if we never sinned. We sinned, but we're treated as if we never sinned. And so this, this aspect of the relational prong of righteousness, where we can actually have a right standing with God, is the phenomenal news of the gospel, because that's not man's natural situation. The Bible actually says that my natural condition is that I'm separated from God, that my relationship with God is separation, which deserves judgment, which deserves death. But the good news of the gospel comes along and scandalously declares, declares me right, takes all my sin and gives me all of Jesus' righteousness. And in that sense, when the Bible is talking about righteousness, it's saying that you are in good standing with God, that the relationship between you and God is good. It's right. It's one aspect of that relational prong. The second aspect of the relational prong is, is, is you with everything else. It's, it's you with everybody else. Am I living at peace with others? Am I, am I interacting in kind ways with others? Uh, this is also where uh, social justice would fit in uh, because biblical righteousness in both the Old Testament and the New Testament shows us that it is far more than a private and personal affair. Remember Jonathan Pennington's quote that righteousness is whole person behavior that accords with God's nature, God's will, and the coming kingdom. And when you read about righteousness in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, uh, there is often an eye towards how you're interacting with the world around you. And so John Stott says, when talking about this kind of righteousness, he says it's concerned with seeking humanity's liberation from oppression. It's the promotion of civil rights. It's responsible care for the planet. It's, it's longing for justice in the courts, integrity in business, and honor in all of our families. It's this relatively big umbrella where the question is, is are things right relationally with all of these other dynamics? So one aspect is me and God, and then the aspect of me and everything else. What's, my, what, you know, what's humanity's relationship like with creation? What's humanity's relationship like with each other? How am I treating the sick? How am I treating the poor? How am I treating the immigrant? How am I treating the fatherless? Uh, the Bible has a deep consideration for how those relationships are going along with the people that are in your life, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, your family members, your friends. You see, biblical righteousness is whole person behavior. It's, it's, a, it's a, uh, an invitation or a, a movement towards the question about every aspect of what's going on with me. How, how's my relationship with God? How's my relationship with others? That's the relational prong. And then what, what am I doing with my, with my time, with my mind, with my actions? with my activities. There's a moral prong to this righteousness. And so it's whole person. 
It's big and it's rich. It includes my personal behavior, my relationship with God, and my relationships with the broader community. And so that, that, it, it, that's a huge definition, I know. But the Bible's not, sh- not shying away from it. The Bible wants all of these things on the table, the moral prong and that pretty big relational prong. So righteousness is not just what's right or wrong. It's also, are we right? Are we okay relation, in our relationship? So what, that is what's right, that, that's what righteousness is. If we were leaning into Jesus' comments here, I think the right next thing would be to say, do you really want righteousness? Because the way that Jesus words this is, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus, uh, throughout his ministry life, he calls us into an upside-down kingdom. Jesus never has a vision of us coasting along, of us kind of reaching cruising altitude and then just doing autopilot. And so as we enter this question, I actually have a sense of like wanting to caution you uh, that there's a sense in which this is disruptive. Uh, If you are a follower of Jesus, then the Bible would tell us that you now represent an entirely different kingdom with an entirely different with entirely different values and under an entirely different authority that if you're a follower of Jesus that that's what you're signing up for you're part of a a different kingdom now Jesus's kingdom the, the kingdom of God that has very different values than the kingdom of this earth and there is a ruler there is a king And his name is Jesus. Now look, if if that's true, new kingdom, new values, new king, then is it surprising at all that the way of life of a Christian, the, the life that a Christian is called to lead, would collide with the world around us? You know, my experience, it it happens in my own heart too. Somehow, we want this to happen to where we can follow Jesus, but everything, you know, it's not too, it doesn't mess with things too much. It kind of aligns with the stuff that I want to do, the way I want to live my life, the way I want to use my resources. It's kind of like, I just want to, like, I want these things to overlap. And, you know, maybe there was a season of time uh, where it was, uh, you know, our culture, the broader culture was referred to as Christendom, where Christianity was the the dominant religion by far. Uh, The vast majority of people, I mean, there was a point in time where over 90% of Americans referred to themselves as Christians or identified as as Christians. Um, And and so, you know, in Europe, this was true for a season in Europe as well. And and maybe you could look back at those times and say, uh, yeah, there were all kinds of messy things going on behind closed doors. Uh, But the broader culture may have at least had some effort to try to align itself with the kingdom, uh, the kingdom values that the Bible put on the table. But I think we're recognizing uh, that it was true back then, the more we learn about history, and it's also true right now uh, that these kingdoms are quite far apart. And to follow Jesus is going to collide with the world around us. It is going to collide with the values 
uh, that we uh, uh, run into in our workplace or in our entertainment or in our friendships. And the more we recognize that following Jesus is an entirely different kingdom with entirely different values and an entirely different authority, the less we should be surprised that we're having those kinds of conflicts. Do you know that that is what you're signing up for, though? Do you recognize that? You know, uh, in a few chapters, in Matthew chapter 8, we we will get there someday. In in, in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to see somebody kind of run up to Jesus, and they're going to say to Jesus, I'll follow you wherever you will go. And Jesus does not look at this person and say, high five, man, let's do it. Way to go. Jesus looks at him and basically says, are you sure? Because this is no joke, what I'm doing. It's, it's, it's an all-in kind of life. He says, foxes have holes and birds have nests, but I have nowhere to lay my head. Are you sure you want to sign up? You know, it, it, like I'm, I am very helped by Jesus' interaction, and he does this a few different times, where the, the person who is so uh, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed to follow him, he's actually hitting the brakes and saying, like, wait, have you, have you counted the cost here? Have you, have you actually heard, have you heard what I've said? Have you heard the life that I'm calling you to? Jesus tells the crowds, you know, full of would-be followers, that to follow him means that you have to deny yourself and take up your cross and follow him. No conditions, no caveats. It means being willing to walk away from anything and everything in your life that competes with Jesus, that he actually rules on the throne of your heart. How bad do you want this righteousness? Jesus says flourishing are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those are words of desperation. Those are words of of anguish, of longing, of sacrifice. That's saying empty stomach, parched mouth. Like, I'm sacrificing for this. I want this. How true is that of us? Do you really want righteousness This kind of righteousness to fill your life, to fill your house, to fill your church, to fill your city. If so, how bad do you want it? Do you want it bad enough to let Jesus fundamentally reshape you? The Bible offers us a place to start. And the place to start is a word called repentance. You know, the word repentance means to turn. That's like its basic meaning. But in the Bible, it's used to to, to reference a turning from trusting yourself to actually trusting God. It's not just a turning from stop doing bad things and start doing good things. It's actually a turn of trust. Who are you trusting in? And the Bible says you have to turn from trusting in your own self-salvation projects, in your own agenda, and you have to start trusting God. It means that you let him set the course, that he actually gets to set the agenda for your life, that he gets to reshape you all the way down. 
See, repentance, properly understood, is actually pretty offensive, especially in our current cultural moment. It's suggesting that you are not actually the captain of your soul, that your plans are not the best plans, that you really do need help. Our society says, be true to yourself. I think you can make the case that that's one of the loudest things that is said in our culture. And Jesus' reply to that is, no, that's not going to work out. Don't, don't be true to yourself. That it's, it's not going to work out. That, that's, 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 not what's, that, that's not leading where you think it'll lead. Uh, there's a, an author named James K.A. Smith, and he's on faculty at Calvin uh, down in Grand Rapids. He's a philosopher, but he actually wrote a book that people can understand. So that's pretty shocking uh, for a philosopher to pull that off. Uh, but it's called You Are What You Love. And over the years, this book has been helpful to us, and it's, we've quoted it quite, quite a few times. Uh, but th this is one of the, a quote that he has. He says, Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect, but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, your longings. And James K.A. Smith is really just playing with Augustine's ideas from, you know, 1700 years ago. Uh, because 1700 years ago, Augustine was writing about this and saying that we have, dis we have disordered loves. Our desires are a mess. Uh, in our house, we like to say our wanters are broken. You know, what we want is not what is good. And for 1,700 years, since, since Augustine wrote about that, the church has been trying to figure out what do we do about our disordered loves. So many of the things that we are tempted to love, they're not bad things in and of themselves. Money is not bad in and of itself, but if it becomes ultimate, it becomes a problem. It's a disordered love. Your spouse, man, you should love your spouse, but if your spouse becomes ultimate, then your loves are now disordered and your spouse has displaced Jesus and it's not going to work out. Work, sex, vacation, all of these things are good gifts from God. But if they become ultimate, they won't work out. Your, your loves, your desires are being disordered. And James Smith is saying that Jesus is after nothing less than those He's, that's where he's after. He is after your wants and your loves and your longings. He wants to reorder them. James Smith describes your heart uh, as an arrow. And if you think of your heart as an arrow, he says it's an arrow that's constantly being wooed to, to point in different directions. He uses all kinds of illustrations, but like, you know, when you walk into the mall, uh, and I, know, I know malls are dying, but this book's 10 years old. Um, you, know, you, you walk into a mall, and, the, and the, all the signage, all the sales, uh, all, the, all the promotions, they are, they are inviting the arrow of your heart to start aiming at materialism, to start aiming at, if I just had those shoes, or if I just had that outfit, or if I just had this or had that. And it is wooing the arrow of your heart to aim at something else. It's, it's, it's a good way to picture your heart. 
Smith goes on to say that spiritual disciplines, including corporate worship, are ways that the arrow of your heart is redirected at God, where it's reoriented. And this is what James Smith says about worship. He says, worship works from the top down, you might say. In worship, we don't just come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Worship isn't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. It's one of the reasons why our service has a general flow to it, where we're trying to start off with a a recognition of God's greatness. We move into a a, a time where we invite you into silent confession uh, or lament. We then celebrate the assurance of pardon that comes through the gospel. We say now that if you've received that peace from Christ, pass that peace to one another. We have the scriptures read, we have the scriptures taught, and then we have songs of response as we come to the table, uh, to to the communion table. We we actually believe that that the shape of the service is part of rehabituating our loves, of reminding us of the story of the gospel. And coming to get communion is part of the way that our body gets involved. Standing to sing, doing responsive readings involves us in the process of what God is doing to our hearts. You you think about all that I just said about James Smith. You, You could say it this way. We have to admit that our desires are distorted and broken and that the arrow of our heart is constantly being wooed to point at something else. We don't just need formation. We need deformation. That when we gather on Sundays, we actually need the help of our body of Christ, of, the, of our brothers and sisters, to help us tear down all these idols and, and altars that we built up through the week. All of these ways in which our hearts were tempted to, 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 to worship something else. We actually need to do demolition to the architecture of our hearts and then to let God rebuild us. That's on Sundays. We need that every day. Are you willing to let him do that? Are you willing to let him bring in the wrecking ball to the architecture of your desires, to your hopes and to your wants? You see, this gets into the question of, do you actually believe that God is good? Do you, do you believe that you can really trust them? Because if you don't believe he's good, then this is, this is a, a bridge too far. This is asking way too much to give up that kind of control, to let him drive the, the car, to let him set the agenda. Well, that's the question. Are you willing to let him do that? Maybe you're saying right now, okay, uh, I guess, but like, what, what, what do I need to change? What, what are the things in my life that I need to change? Well, look, I, I can't answer that. that that's a question that, that you, you need to spend some time with. Uh, the people that are closest to you in your life, uh, invite them into that question. The psalmist at one point says to the, says to the Lord, Lord, s- search my heart. Help, help me see me. 
I am my least accurate critic. You, you need to spend some time on this. You need to work on this. The list could be really long. But it is hard to see ourselves. Uh, there's a guy named John Dixon. Uh, he's Australian. Uh, and he teaches a course at Wheaton. And the course that he teaches at Wheaton is on the first 1,000 years of Christian history. So basically up to 1,000 A.D. And um, he, he just was talking about this course and how it um, is, is disruptive for him every time he teaches it. And it's also quite disruptive for the kids that are in the class. And uh, I, I, put the, I put the quote on the screen uh, behind me here. This is what John Dixon says. We are right to look with shock and disappointment at the way medieval Christians accepted violence as a norm. It seems clear that in seeking to convert European warrior societies, Christians themselves were converted to a martial ideology. Uh, in, in contradiction to the teaching of Jesus, we see this with clarity today. We even question whether they could have been real Christians. He says kids in his class ask this question all the time. Like that kind of violence? They did that to other people? Were these even Christians? He says, I'm equally struck by how medieval Christians wholeheartedly obeyed Jesus' call to shun wealth and pursue charity. They said, the one who does not show uh, material mercy has not known divine mercy towards their sins. We are right to condemn medieval Christians for their violence. Would they be right to condemn modern Christians for the way we accept the pursuit of wealth, pleasure, and comfort as norms. They might say that in seeking to convert modern materialistic societies, we ourselves have been converted to a materialistic ideology. They might even wonder if we are real Christians. See, our, our, our sensibilities today, we don't have a lot of space for physical violence. So when his students at Wheaton read these accounts back from those first thousand years and they see the violence that Christians did to other people to try to convert them, it's so distasteful. And these college students are thinking, there's no way, there's no way that a Christian could ever do that. But John Dixon says, man, if, if those Christians could look forward and see our level of consumption, see the ways in which we have allowed this culture to seep into our bones, our desire, our willingness to allow ourselves to be shaped, not by the teaching of Jesus, but by the teaching of our culture, would they say, how can they even be real Christians? How could they ever do this in light of what Jesus has said? What might Jesus want to change in you? Well, our society is forming us more than we realize. Our society is shaping us and it is extremely difficult to see ourselves. It is extremely difficult to critique your own culture. It's the water you swim in. It's the water I swim in. It's all we actually know. And so this is worth some work. So maybe John Dixon's example is right. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's comfort. Uh, maybe it's the way you use your time. Maybe it's uh, your sexuality. Maybe it's your identity. Maybe it's your, the agenda of your life. Maybe it's something else. 
Uh, the reason why we only had two songs before the sermon is that at the end, we're going to have a, an extended time of worship like we did a few weeks ago. And we're going to have three songs, and, and communion is self-serve. And so during that time, I would invite you, if you want to run up and get communion, go for it. Uh, but if you want to take some time and, and sit with these questions as we sing, um, I would invite you to do that, to ask the question of what hungering and thirsting for righteousness might look like in your life at this stage. You know, I'm, I'm 47, and back when I was in my 20s, um, someone, uh, I, you know, a lot of 20-year-olds are dealing with a lot of hormonal issues, a lot of hormonal temptations, and a, a lot of kids in their early 20s are not, not married yet, and, you know, sexual temptations and sexual hormones, I mean, that stuff can be raring, like roaring. And um, I was talking with a, an older professor one time, and he said, uh, he's like, Matt, I, I said something like, I just, I, you know, can I just fast forward like 10 years? Can I just like get past this stage, like get married and whatever? And this, this, this guy was in his late 50s and he said, Matt, here, here's what I've learned. That every decade has its own set of temptations. And so the temptations that you're experiencing in your, 20, 20, in your 20s will probably be different than the temptations you're facing in your 30s. And the temptations you're facing in your 30s will probably be different than the temptations you're facing in your 40s. And so with the 50s and your 60s and your 70s and your 80s, and so this journey of asking Jesus, what would it look like for me to hunger and thirst after righteousness in this moment as an embodied person in a real world with a real body and real relationships and real fears and real challenges? What would it look like for me to hunger and thirst for righteousness? But before I close, let, let, let me share some great news. You know, all this talk of righteousness you know, it, it, you, it, might, it might feel impossible, like moral, this moral righteousness that like everybody's going to do what's right. Yeah, right. Like look around that, you know, watch the evening news like that's not happening. Or this, this social side, this relational side, that people are actually going to treat each other with dignity, that people are going to treat the, 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 the uh, creation, they're going to care for creation well. They're going to love their neighbor. They're actually going to love their enemy. I, you know, I, I doubt it. That can all feel so impossible. And I would understand if it feels impossible. But let me tell you what the Bible actually says. The Bible says that biblical righteousness is the future. It is the future. Have you ever heard the phrase, you know, don't you want to be on the right side of history? Oh, man. Biblical righteousness is the right side of history. Biblical righteousness is what is coming, and it is going to flood the earth. That is the future. All things made new. All things made right. You know, N.T. Wright uses this illustration about two Roman generals. And he says they're, 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 these two Roman generals, are, they're not in Rome. They're off in a faraway place, and they are fighting for the throne of Rome. And as they battle it out on this far-off field, I think he uses Anthony and Octavian as the examples. He says, uh, Octavian wins. And when Octavian conquers Anthony, uh, Octavian sends a messenger back to Rome. And this messenger runs back to Rome and says, I have an announcement. Octavian has won. He's not here yet, but he's on his way. Get ready. You see, what he's saying to the city of Rome is Octavian has won, he has defeated his enemy, and he's on his way back. He's not here yet. He's our king, 
but he's not here yet. When he gets here, he's going to set up the whole place in light of his vision. So prepare yourself. N.T. Wright says that's exactly what is happening with Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ came and he won the ultimate battle. He defeated sin and Satan and death and all of our enemies. And now the proclamation has come to us that he is king. He's not here in full yet, but he's coming back. And when he does come back, he is going to set the whole place up in light of his vision. So prepare yourselves. See, that, 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 that's something you are invited to, to, to trust in Jesus, to believe in Jesus. But it doesn't matter if you believe that. That is what's happening. This earth is going to be remade. It's all going to be made new. Jesus is going to reign as king. And every single thing will be right. This is the message of the gospel. Jesus has won. He's already reigning, but he's not here in full yet. This is the main reason that Jesus says, flourishing are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. For they shall be satisfied. In the book of Revelation, chapter 7, we find out there's a bunch of people before the throne, and it crystal clear says, they will hunger no more, and they will thirst no more. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, you are going to find that all of those longings will come true. Until then, we joyfully receive Christ's righteousness. We long for righteousness to fill our lives, and we work to see righteousness fill our city and our world. Whole person behavior. What would it look like to truly hunger and thirst for it? To give yourself to it to sacrifice for it, to let Jesus lead you. You know, Jesus gave his whole life so that we could have life. So now we're going we're gonna to go to communion. There's going to be three songs as we close the service. So you have time. You do not need to rush to the table. There's two up here and one in the back and one in the balcony as well. Uh, and when you're ready, come remember this broken body and this spilled blood for you. Let's pray. God, we stand here, I stand here before you. Uh, we, we're gathered here. And we thank you that the, the trajectory of history is toward a world made right, toward an earth that is again filled with righteousness, where everyone does right, where every relationship is right, where you are with your people and your people are with you. And it's all, it's all right. God, would you give us hearts that long for that now? Would you give us hearts that, 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 that long for that with our neighbors and with our friends, with our, our world around us? God, hearts that long for that with you. God, that you would give us a, a passion for it, a, a sacrificial heart to actually let you reshape us all the way down, to, to remake us, to reorder our desires. God, we need your help. We, we can't see ourselves very clearly. We need your guidance. We need your, we need your forgiveness. We need your direction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.